You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. Good morning, King's Cross. My name is Chip. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, If you have a very discerning eye and you look very closely, you can faintly tell where my hat and sunglasses stopped yesterday and the sun began to beat down on my bald Irish head. So uh, hopefully that's not too distracting for you. Um, We're going to be back in the book of Nehemiah uh, this morning, Nehemiah chapter 8, actually, uh, if you want to turn there or uh, take out your phone maybe and pull up your Bible app and, uh, and be turning there. If you're brand new and uh, maybe you're just joining us, let me catch you up a little bit. We've been studying this book of Nehemiah for several weeks now. Um, and so just very quickly, about 150 years before the events of the book of Nehemiah, Jerusalem had been conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He had exiled a bunch of their leading citizens um, out of the city and back uh, to Babylon. Jerusalem fell into ruin. After that, Persia comes along and conquers Babylon. And King Cyrus of Persia issued this decree that the Jews could return back to their city if they wanted to. And so they did that, but the city was in pretty bad shape. Until eventually... The temple was restored, and then later the walls of the city were restored, which allowed the population of the city to be restored back into their homes. And this morning, in Nehemiah chapter 8, their worship is restored. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8. Um, and from that passage, I want to show you one of, not the only, but one of, the greatest examples of how to preach a sermon in the entire Bible. So follow along as I read. Nehemiah 8, we're going to start with verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest, which is um, the same person, he, he, just, he served both, both functions. Don't let that confuse you. Ezra the priest brought the law Before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right hand, and Pedaiah, Mishael, Malkajiah, Hishum, Hashbanadah, Zechariah, and Meshalum on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people physically on the wooden platform it was raised. He was above the people. As he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamun, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kelatiah, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, and the Levites 
helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places, in the square there before the water gate. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I think, if my memory serves me well, that this is the first sermon that I've preached about preaching since we planted the church, I think. Um, So here's my goal. You need to know, as individuals and as a church family, how the men who stand in this space should handle the Word of God. You need to know, and even if you're just visiting, maybe you have another home church, like you, you should have some understanding of how it is that the sermon time that you are voluntarily giving up your own weekend time for, what this should look like. And God's word is not silent on this issue, so you shouldn't be ignorant on this issue. So I want to show you four principles about preaching with the goal of helping you have a greater ownership of this time that we spend together on Sunday mornings every week. So four principles about preaching pulled directly out of Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8. The first one is this. The people guard the gospel. The people guard the gospel. Look back at verse 1. Notice who it is that's taking the action. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Ezra has been in the city of Jerusalem for about 13 years. There is no doubt in my mind that in the course of those 13 years, he had read the law and instructed the people in accordance with the law many, many times. But there's something different here. Now the people, as one man, have gathered and requested that he read the law. They didn't have the Bible app. They didn't have personal Bibles that they could carry around. But they did have priests and scribes and Levites, and so they had access to the Word of God. That wasn't new, but evidently there has been a shift in their prioritization of it. Because now the people are gathering and saying, go get the book of the law and read it to us. According to the American Bible Society, 87% of American households own at least one Bible. More than half of those say that they have either read none of it, a few sentences of it, or a few stories in it. And those numbers include church folk. If you read more of that survey and you kind of dig into the data, what you'll discover is that most people use their Bible the way people my age use YouTube. They go to it to solve a problem. (laughs) So last week, my washing machine started leaking, um, or we noticed it was leaking last week. And so I did uh, what people who can just see around the corner to 50 do. I went on YouTube and I Googled my washing machine to see, well, what do I do about this leak? But the Bible wasn't intended to be a troubleshooting manual for life. 
That that's not the, the point of it. And one of the disheartening things, if you dig into that survey, is it basically says that's how Americans use the Bible. I got a problem, I'll go see if I can find a verse. Bible contains the very words of God. It's not an FAQ manual for problems in life. It is God's self-revelation inspired by the Holy Spirit communicated through the personalities and cultures of nearly 40 authors over about 1,500 years on three continents. From the beginning to the end, it tells one story. We call it the gospel. It's about God's sovereign plan to redeem and reconcile and restore all things through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The church has historically summarized that overarching story with the Greek word back then, euangelion. We have translated that into English as the word gospel. It just means good news. And that gospel, the good news of the Bible, which includes the book of the law that they asked Moses to go get and read. I think that is, they're probably referring there to the book that we call Deuteronomy. Sometimes the whole first five books of the Bible were called the book of the law, but I, I think um, it, it's probably the book of Deuteronomy that he is reading in Nehemiah 8.1. That gospel is to be guarded by the people of God, not professional Christians like me or some council in Rome, or any one local church, or denomination, or movement. The people of God guard the gospel of God. That's why, if you read some of the New Testament passages, Paul calls out, for example, the church in Galatia. He calls them foolish. And in his letter, he reminds them, the whole church, that even if an apostle, he says, or an angel from heaven, or in Galatians 1.9, anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one that they had received, that person should be accursed. And he's saying to the people of God, to the church, what, what are you doing? You're not guarding this. It's how come the Bereans in Acts 17.11 are commended. Because it says they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures to see if the things that were being preached were so. And they get a commendation for it. It's how come the church in Corinth is reminded of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, and told to hold fast to the word and to stand firm in the faith. These Letters and commendations and commands are not being given to one person, but to the church. Because the people of God guard the gospel of God. We're having starting point um, tonight at 530. It's one of the steps in our membership process. Some of you have already registered for that. We're looking forward to that time. One of the things that um, happens in our membership process is that everyone who's a covenant member signs a covenant or affirms a covenant that we have written. The last um, paragraph of that says this. We will submit to the biblical leadership of the church as those who keep watch over our souls and will give an account supporting them with our prayers while guarding the gospel entrusted to us and the church's doctrine and witness in the community. Because the guardian of the gospel at King's Cross is not me and Josh. 
It's us. It's the people of God. And should I or the elders or someone 10 or 20 or 100 years from now ever stray from the gospel, distort the gospel, deny the gospel at King's Cross, it is up to you, the people of King's Cross, to guard it, to stand as one, and to demand a return to it and a restoration of the proclamation of it from this pulpit. It's one reason why we put so much emphasis on we and community and togetherness because some things require all of us together, standing as one, including our responsibility to guard the gospel. Second principle, the text sets the agenda. The biblical text sets the agenda. Look again at verses 2 and 3. It says Ezra brought the law before the assembly. Not his personal insight, not his personal philosophy or his own spiritualism. What Ezra had to offer to the people of God was the word of God. That's what he brings. It says he read from it in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. So he didn't kind of obliquely, tangentially, in passing, refer to the law by referencing kind of half verses over here and and two or three words cut out of a verse over there to back up kind of some vaguely spiritual but super encouraging pep talk for the people. His starting point was the word of God. He brings it and he reads from it. And, verses 2 and 3 say, the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So what the people wanted to hear was the word of God, not the word of Ezra. You with me? Everything that happens for the entire rest of chapter 8, and we're going to continue to look at chapter 8 again next week as well, it flows out of, it's a response to the law being opened and read to the people. The text of the book of the law of Moses set the agenda for the gathering of the people of Israel. And that has to be true of us today as well. During this time that we spend together on Sunday morning, the biblical passage itself should determine the main idea of our sermons, define the tone of the sermons, and direct the application of the sermons. When that is done, we call that expositional preaching. It's just the the word that's used for it. It's expositional preaching. It's preaching where the text sets the agenda. The text determines what the preacher says. Now, how he says it might vary. 
And so if you've been around King's Cross for a while, you know that there are times when we go through passages of the scripture kind of verse by verse. There are times when we will look over whole chapters or even multiple chapters in one sermon. Sometimes when we gather, we will consider what the Bible has to say about certain topics or certain doctrines or certain themes in the scripture. So there's a variety of ways how we might approach the text, but the sermon begins with the text. Because the text sets the agenda. So we don't do running historical commentary, right? Like you're not here for a history lesson. And so what we don't do is we don't say, uh, look at verse 1. And here are some interesting things I read in a commentary this week about verse 1. Now, please look at verse 2. And here are some really interesting things I read in a commentary this week about verse 2. Now, look at verse 3. That's not preaching, okay? That's not exposition. That's exegesis, to use seminary terms. It's explaining. And that's okay. We, we need that. So we need explanation. But that is explaining what the biblical text meant back then to those people. And again, that's good. We need that. But we can't stop there. We have to get to what the truth of the text still means for me and you today here in our lives. And that's what we attempt to do every week. But it's both and, right? So the, so the question isn't, do we get to both? The question is, where do we start? So we don't start with me or with us, but with the text because the text sets the agenda. So before we can talk about what this means for us, we have to talk about what this means. Before we can, let me say it again, because some of you missed it. Like, before we can talk about what this means for us, we have to talk about what this means. So let me give you just a few practical ways to discern this. Because I know that every week we always have visitors who are here, or some of you don't know this, but in six months your company's going to transfer you to another city and suddenly you're going to be finding yourself looking for a church. So let me just give you uh, some some ways to discern whether or not the text is setting the agenda in case we drift from it at this church or in case at some point you find yourself looking for another church. Um, if you're at a church where every sermon is an uplifting, uplifting pep talk about how great you are, the text is not setting the agenda. It's not. Because A, the Bible's not about you. This is not about you. And B, every biblical passage isn't an uplifting pep talk about how great you are. Some of them are warnings. Like Matthew 16, 6, Jesus said to them, Watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's a warning. Some of them are commands. Like John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Some of them are about the church like the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Some of them are promises of things to come, like 1 Thessalonians 4 and the entire book of Revelation. So like every week can't be an uplifting pep talk about how great you are. That's not the text. Now, some texts are about that, but not every text. I'll give you another one. If you're at a church where a verse or two of Scripture here and there is kind of used to supplement 
the pastor's winsome musings on human nature or success or leadership or personal spirituality or whatever kind of the self-help topic of the week is, the text is not setting the agenda. And we could go on with examples. I don't hear me beating up a, a local church, okay? Don't hear that. If some of you are thinking he's using those examples to attack a church in our community, you are wrong. Don't hear that. I'm not saying that, okay? But what you should look for in a church, what you should demand from this church is that the text sets the agenda. So the idea of the sermon should begin with, thus says the Lord. Then we move on to how it applies to us. I'll give you one quick example and I'll move on. Um, I did kind of some advanced sermon planning back in the summer of 2021. So this sermon um, has been planned for about 15 months, as has next week's sermon. And so next week, my plan was for us to talk about corporate worship because Nehemiah 8, 13 to 18, next week's text, talks about the Feast of Booths. Now, we don't celebrate the Feast of Booths anymore. It's an Old Testament festival. It's been fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Um, I think there's some promises about some of it in Revelation, but that's a different sermon. Um, and so we don't celebrate that. But my thought when I did the planning was, ooh, um, a good parallel there for us would be corporate worship. So we'll talk this morning about sermons and next week about corporate worship. And then I got into studying a little more in depth the text this week. And so I called Josh into my office on Monday morning and I said, hey, um, I have a question for you. Um, I'm looking at Nehemiah 8 and we had planned to talk next week about corporate worship. I don't think that's what the text is about. And Josh went, oh, thank goodness. Oh, he said, I've been looking. I was trying to follow your train of thought, but I don't see it. <laughs> so next week's sermon's not about corporate worship because that's not what the text is about. And the first time I glanced over it, I was wrong. And so the text is setting the agenda for next week's sermon because what the sermon is going to be about is what the text is about. Because the text sets the agenda for the preacher, just like he did with Ezra, and for the people, just like it did for Israel as they gathered as one in the square before the water gate. Third principle. The preacher is not alone. The preacher's not alone. I'll move a little quicker here. But I wonder if you caught two things as I read through verses 4 through 6. First, did you catch there were 13 other priests on the platform with Ezra? When Ezra stood to declare the word of the Lord to the people, he was literally not alone. I think it's safe to assume, although it's not clearly stated in Nehemiah's record of that day, that those other 13 priests also read from the book of the law kind of during the course of the day. So I think Ezra is the main actor, but he's not the only one. To read from early morning till midday is physically exhausting. So I think there's probably, you know, at some point they get to a chapter break and he hands it off, right? Chapter breaks weren't there. That was a joke. So he's not alone. We added those later in verse numbers. Um, we added those later. The same principle is true for Moses in Old Testament Israel. The same was true for the Levites in uh, the time of the temple. The same was true for the apostles during the church age. 
And the same is true for us. And so at King's Cross, in addition to Josh and I, who are staff elders, we have four lay elders, Andy Boyer, Bo Butler, Charles Hook, and Hugh Tappan. They have been affirmed by our covenant members, and they have the authority to speak into what it is that we teach and preach. So they help me to lead and to pastor you, and they have the responsibility to correct and to counsel me if and when it's needed. It's how come every week, I don't know if you catch this or not, every week I introduce myself as one of the pastors here, because that's what I am, because I'm not in this alone. It's one of the reasons why Josh sees my sermon manuscript every week before you hear it, so that in case there's something in there that's a little off or not quite clear, I'm not alone in the content, and I don't want to be alone. I don't, that's, not what, that's not what I desire. I would say if you are in a local church where one pastor wants all of the power and no one can speak into his life or ministry, you should either run from that church or stay and start trying to reform it because that is not a healthy model. The pastor's not alone. Another thing I wonder if you caught in verse 6, it said, Ezra, bless the Lord, the great God. And all the people, what? Answered. And what did they say? Amen. Amen. And then what did they do? This is where we know they weren't Southern Baptists. Then what did they do? (laughs) They raised their hands, which freaks some of you out every week. And you're like, I didn't know that was biblical. I've been judging these people for four years. Okay, (laughs) repent, right? And they fell on their faces and they worshiped. The preaching act that day in the square before the water gate, the sermonic moments were participatory. The people were actively listening. They were responding to the word of the Lord as it is being read and explained by Ezra the priest. It was not a show or a lecture It wasn't something Ezra was doing on behalf of the people. They were in it with him. Some of you know, because I poke a little bit from time to time, this is a place where as a church family we could grow. And it's just a little bit of culture of, you know, deep south kind of Bible belt, Southern Baptist, frozen chosen culture. Okay? But this is a place where we can grow. And so... um, Kristen and I went up, sunburn, to the Clemson game yesterday, right? I actually took sunscreen, but it turns out that having it in the car doesn't help. <laughs> so anyway, right? So we go up to the Clemson game yesterday, and I, I don't know what Death Valley seats, but what, 80,000 people, something like that. Right? Here's what was not happening. At the end of the game, uh, they were playing a team called Syracuse. Syracuse was driving, trying to win, and a Clemson guy intercepted the ball and, and sealed the win for Clemson. Right? And here's what happened in that moment. 80,000 people sat quietly in their seats and went, mm, that was good. That's not what happened, right? That's not what happened, okay? And so I know, especially dudes, right? I know some of you dudes yesterday were so loud in your living rooms that your wives were telling you to calm it down, right? 
So I know that when some of you go up to the North Charleston Coliseum and you're at a Stevie Nicks concert or Jamestown, whoever else, you know, whoever is up there in concert at the North Charleston Coliseum, I know good and well that you're not refraining from singing along because you're afraid somebody's going to hear you. And then all of a sudden your culture shifts when you come into the house of the Lord. Because you're more excited about a touchdown than you are the truth about the risen Christ. Now, if I preach in a way that's dull and boring, that's on me. But I'll tell you that three or four times a month, somebody, often my staff, will come to me and say, man, that was so good on Sunday. I almost said, amen. I said, why didn't you? So that's that's not really what we do. So look, next time you're thinking that in your head and some truth about who God is and what it is that he's done for you in Christ is proclaimed from this stage, you saying amen is biblical. You have warrant for it. Okay? Not trying to turn you into Pentecostal holiness people. Okay? But every now and then, an amen wouldn't hurt. Because watch this, I'm not supposed to be up here alone. I'll throw in a bonus observation here too. The next verse, verse 7, there are another 13 men plus the Levites mentioned. They come along and work with the people after Ezra reads the book of the law. So not only is the preacher not alone in the task of preaching, he's also not alone in the task of leading and equipping and instructing the people after the teaching moment's over. You tracking? Now you just heard me. You just heard me. (laughs) So this is why at King's Cross, you get people other than me. We, every one of our elders, thank you, thank you. <laughs> now you're excited. Yes. We've got to learn timing. Is Okay, so every one of our elders has or can preach on Sunday mornings, and you hear from them regularly. Every now and then, we, we have such a rich treasure of people who can handle the word that we don't a lot of times bring in a lot of pastors from other churches because we just don't have to, and they have churches to pastor to. But every now and then, you hear from pastors from other congregations who come in because where what we learn from is the word, not a man. This is how come we have both men and women who lead equipped classes and community groups and grow groups and student ministry small groups and children's ministry small groups. Like We are not building a cult of personality here on my spiritual gifting and calling. We're building a church on the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, with the people of God to pursue the mission of God together. You are not here to facilitate my dream. We're here to do the work of the Lord together. So no one leader and certainly no one pastor are alone in that work. Last principle. The sermon isn't the end. The sermon isn't the end. If you look back at those other people that are mentioned in verse 7 and 8, I think they're basically small group leaders. And so it says in verse 7, 
Yeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, and it goes on to list these names. Right? If this was King's Cross instead of Israel in verse 7, it would say Josh and Christy, Megan and AJ, Zach and Jenny, Greg and Vivian, Art and Mary, Bo and Ashley, Bobby and Jennifer, JB and Rondia helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, verse 8, from the law of God clearly, and they gave a sense so that the people understood the reading. So evidently what happened was, after this sermon, if you will, there are 10,000 people gathered in the square there, and evidently they have breakout sessions. There are these other people who go around and they talk with the people after Ezra's done. And so you might can imagine in a, in a place that large in the middle of the city that you would hear people saying, hey, I didn't quite hear what he read in that part. Could you repeat it? Did you, did you hear? Hey, um, I don't really understand what that part meant. Could you explain it to me? Hey, I heard what Ezra said there from Deuteronomy 6. I don't really understand how that applies to my life. What what am I supposed to do with that? And they have these conversations. So that the effect was between the priest who is up on the stage and these leaders who are dispersed out among the people, the net effect was they read from the scriptures. They did so clearly in a way that people could understand. They they weren't speaking another language. They weren't just barely whispering so that the people in the front could hear. But the people in the back were struggling. Right? They spoke clearly so that everybody could hear. They weren't weren't reading in some weird sing-songy way that people got, got hypnotized and fell asleep. They read clearly, and they gave the sense which means they explained what the text meant and what it meant to them so that the people understood. That's how you preach a sermon. You say, here's what God said. Here's what it means. Here's what it means to you. Now go talk about it and apply it and live it out in your life. Because the sermon isn't the end. At least I hope it isn't. This is my goal is that when you leave here, you are thinking about and meditating on and discussing with one another the things that God has said to us through his word on Sunday. This is one of the reasons why Josh's model is every time we plant a new community group, that community group spends the first six months going over sermon-based application-oriented discussion questions because the sermon itself is not the end. Now, if you don't understand it, that's on me. If you don't apply it, that's on you. So if you're not already in a small group, you need to be in a small group. We have several different kinds. Go on the website. You can sign one of those up. Grab Josh after the service today. Just tell him the Holy Spirit was convicting you that, you know, your time, like for you every week, the sermon is the end and you don't want it to be. Josh will get you connected with the right group for you. But our goal is that every person at King's Cross will be growing in the gospel. We want you to know Christ. 
We want you to be committed to attending worship services regularly. We want you to be practicing spiritual habits on your own at home when you leave this place. And that includes reading and understanding and studying and meditating on and talking about the Word of God because the sermon isn't the end of our engagement with God or His engagement with us for the week. The only time you're being fed is when I feed you. You will starve to death spiritually. I'm not that good. I don't preach strongly enough or long enough. The sermon can't be the end. You'll starve to death spiritually. There is not one word of the Bible that is there by accident. Everything, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, is there to teach us and to rebuke us to correct us when we sin and to train us in righteousness so that we won't walk in sin any longer. And so we can and we should thank God that he speaks to us through his word. And we should take seriously the examples to us in that word concerning the preaching of or the listening to sermons. Next week, we're going to talk more about how to listen to a sermon. For now, let's pray. We'll ask for God's help. That this moment won't be the end of this passage's impact on us this week. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a God who speaks. You are not silent. You are not removed from your creation as if somehow you are distant and far away, but you are near to us, never more so And when Christ came and lived among us, and now that the Holy Spirit can be given to us by your grace through faith. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you open the eyes of our heart that we might behold wondrous things in your law? Would you make your law sweeter to us than honey and drippings from the honeycomb? More precious to us than gold, even much fine gold that we might meditate on it day and night so that even in the night our hearts might instruct us. Would you give the people of this church a heart to guard the gospel entrusted to them and the faithfulness of those who stand in this place to preach it to them? That we might be known as a place where the gospel is proclaimed More than that, where it is lived out by its people as they scatter from here, as we will do shortly. And we pray that as we do, your spirit and your blessings will be with us. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.